Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear. Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside, so hurry and get your seats. Tonight you are treated to the double bill of the classic cool, the Sultan of Smooth, the one and only Mr. Cary Grant. See his character break out at the hands of Leo McCary as he engages in a battle of the sexes with Irene Dunn in The Awful Truth. Then strap in for a tread into the criminal underworld during wartime and the realization of why we fight as Mr. Grant becomes Mr. Lucky. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Hiya, fella. Hello, Mr. Smith. How's your been, huh? I'll see you in a minute, boy. I'll see you in a minute. Yeah, sure. Hello, Jared. <laughs> Hello, Lizzie. What might you be doing here? Oh, now, don't tell me. You've forgotten this is my day to visit Mr. Smith. It says so right there. What? Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Leeson. This is my husband. Oh. Oh, he's only my husband for, uh, how much longer is it now, 60 days? 59. Oh, that's better. Only 59 days. And, and don't worry about him. He has a continental mind. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, oh, there, I'm I'm glad glad to know. Excuse me, what do you say? I say I'm glad to know you. How can you be glad to know me? I know how I'd feel if I was sitting with a girl and her husband walked in. I'll bet you do. <laughs> you know, I don't think you ought to go around telling people you're not married. He looks like a nice sort of fellow. How do you think he feels? Why don't you go and play with the dog? Why don't you go uh, on with whatever you were doing? I'm going to... Don't mind me. <laughs> Once in the life of every star comes the perfect picture. When Cary Grant first read the story of Mr. Lucky, he told RKO, you buy it, I'll play it. And now Mr. Lucky comes to the screen with Cary Grant playing the role of the most dangerous adventurer Whoever crashed society. I got a crack at one of the biggest bank rolls in New York if it works. What's holding it up? An iceberg, but I'll melt it down. We'll stop at my house. It's on the way. Anybody home? No. Joe. Come on, take off your mask. You're with friends. Don't be silly. Then don't give me those baby blues. You think I brought you here because... because... Oh, didn't you? How long has it been since anyone had any control over you? Nobody ever had. And nobody ever will. Listen to me, you little idiot. He's been convicted three times. Well, unless you give me your word of honor the police will be called off, I'm going to marry him. 
You think the worst thing that could happen to you is to marry me? You're not kidding me, sister. I know how I stand with you after you cash in on me. This is the story Cary Grant asked the studio to buy for him. A story so perfectly suited to his exciting talents that it becomes his most outstanding performance on the screen. Now that you've seen the film, we will get into the talk of the day, a discussion about two Grant pictures, one known and one lesser known. The debonair star of the screen starred in many films and left behind a mark of the ultimate male leading man in Hollywood with everything to offer. While we know many of his classics because of that personality, we don't tend to discuss the range he possessed. That's why we shall tackle the classic The Awful Truth and the lesser known romp Mr. Lucky. Here to chat with me is an accomplished podcaster whose show, Real Nerds Podcast, is dedicated to reviewing films each week. In 2020, he published his article covering every Cary Grant film after developing an affinity for our star of the week. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ryan Frost. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome back. You you uh, you started off Shamley, and uh, of course, we had to get you here for the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Uh, I'm kind of pissed. I'm not your first uh, guest, but you know, yes, I'll this, let it slide. This is this is a bit of a slight, but um, you know, for episode two, we give you two films to talk about with your favorite subjects. So I hope that makes up for that for that horrible. It does. <laughs> it, I'm I'm glad it does. So Ryan, um, we've. Our, the discussion of Cary Grant has gone on throughout the Real Nerds podcast, and it bl- obviously bled into Shamley. But for anybody who's kind of tuning in just now, can you uh, brush us up a little bit on your history with Cary Grant? Oh, geez. So Cary Grant is one of those actors that no matter what, you kind of fall in love with. And when I was younger, my mom and dad were divorced so i spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my grandpa bill had cable and back then which i'm sure you remember zach amc and uh tmc used to just show classic movies yeah they didn't have like you know scripted shows or any of (laughs) that stuff breaking bad was not a thing for amc (laughs) (laughs) um so when i would go to my grandpa bill's house he had i'll I'll never forget you know he had two recliners and he had a couch. And my other brothers didn't care about movies like I did. Their movies were kind of my escape always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and video games and comics. Uh, you know, I, my younger and older brother are great guys. Just it wasn't their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so at night, my grandfather, he would always put on the Nuggets because he's a huge basketball fan. And then after Nuggets played, he'd turn on AMC or TMC. And I started to really gravitate towards um, leading men like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. And when I saw Cary Grant for the first time on uh, North by Northwest, you know, it's one of those things where I think North by Northwest is the ultimate Cary Grant film. Um, I mean, uh, we're going to talk about the awful truth. That's my favorite Cary Grant movie. But if I had to pick a Cary Grant performance and everything that encapsulated him as an actor it'd definitely be north by northwest 
Yes, it's 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 almost as if it's the ultimate Cary Grant movie and also the ultimate movie of another person. Nah, I'm just saying. right. <laughs> and I don't know if that or Charade is his most beloved film, but I think they run neck and neck pretty regularly. Um, if I mean, if I took somebody, you know, Corinne had a friend uh, has a friend named Jerry, and he had never seen um, a Cary Grant film, and he saw Charade when we saw it at. Uh, uh, the Esquire? Yes. Oh, no, the, the Shea Artiste. Yeah, the Shea Artiste. The Shea Artiste, thank you. Um, and so then he was entranced with him. And so he, I always had his big um, North by Northwest, um, Notorious, and Charade I had on Blu-ray. And then I don't know why. I, I mean, I know why because I like Cary Grant. But Criterion um, last year or was it 2018, put out uh, The Awful Truth on their collection. And I was entranced by the cover art because, I mean, you see Cary Grant, and this is before I even knew how great Irene Dunn was. I mean, obviously, if you love classic Hollywood, you know who she is, but really getting to appreciate her. And then they had that uh, little dog on it. So I go, um, <laughs> all right, you know, I'll take a chance on it. And, uh, and I watched it, and it's maybe one of the greatest movies of all time. And that started me on this journey where I was going to watch every single Cary Grant film, which is there's 72 of them. And as I started going through it, I started realizing how much I really enjoyed his films and I enjoyed him as a performer. And then I started getting biographies on him and just really kind of becoming obsessed with everything that he does. And I, 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 I mean, I I fell in love with the dude, and I to this day I still pop in Cary Grant movies. I mean, um, and you know, thank you. I wasn't going to be able to see them all. I was at seventy one, and you were <laughs> sweet enough to get me the Gene Harlow collection because I didn't want to spend whatever the forty five fifty dollars on one movie. Okay, so this is an interesting story, and I, and I'll, I'll let me preface this really quickly because sure. this is interesting. Is so. The movie in question is a movie called Susie, which we should talk about at some point on the show because of the fact of it's amazing that a movie that is that um, kind of like it's not like it's not an it's not like a classic, the best thing of all time. It's just interesting that there were multiple ways that Warner Archive put out and they had not reissued it or they weren't making it MOD. And the only way you were able to get it was in this Gene Harlow box set. We tracked the price on this thing from Amazon to eBay for, I think, close to a year. Yep. <laughs> and, and finally, at, uh, I I know it, it was like a week before. I'm like, I'm tired of this. I want to know what this movie's about. I'm just getting this fucking set just to see what this movie is that we can't fucking find. And I uh, I popped it. I, I, will, I will never forget it. We popped it over to um, Rise of Skywalker for our meetup for the final star Wars event. And then I was just like, here, finish this shit. <laughs> like, and it, it, like, you know, it's one of the nicest gifts I've ever gotten. So thank you. I don't know if I've ever <laughs> shown my appreciation for it. Cause we haven't really seen each other since then. Um, yeah, technically. Yeah. It, Cause we, we are uh, full disclosure. We are recording over zoom as a result of the pandemic still going on, but also just out of convenience for every schedule involved. But no, you've you've definitely shown your appreciation for it. I mean, like, and I'm definitely going to get even with you when I have you back on to talk about a Carol Lombard movie that 
features a um I, I would argue an equally debonair human being but uh, that's that's an <laughs> rip opinion um <laughs> hey i want to say that was my idea when you sent me emails for more ideas for the uh your series so um and i'm totally down and it's definitely on the list because it's i think it's one when you finally watch it you're going to kind of i don't think you're going to like it's not going to blow your mind the way carrie grant does but i think you will go like why haven't i seen this before it's one that i when I suggest it to people, I'm like, trust me, you have no idea how modern it is. But we're not here to talk about that other suave, debonair gentleman. We're here to talk about Cary Grant, the one and only classic. Cool. And you're bringing up TCM and AMC. I've, I've, if I'm recalling correctly, one of the first times I saw North by Northwest was somewhere around that AMC period, but I don't believe I watched it in full until um, either high school or college. So like the, the Cary Grant had to grow on me. And I think a lot of that had to do with you um, because like I appreciated him, but my guy's always been Bogart. And so like there's um, and even then there's still uh, blind spots in Bogart's career that I still haven't watched yet. Like I just watched the enforcer for the first time a couple weeks ago and it's fantastic. Um, but like, so with Cary Grant though, you know, it, it's interesting. He's been coming up a lot in the discussion lately in terms of discussing old Hollywood. Um, obviously, Secret History of Hollywood is in part one of their going to be multi-part series on Cary Grant. And you get um, uh, you also have a, a lot of discussions about his legacy. There's a sunglasses company that put out a replica of his sunglasses from, I believe it's North by Northwest. Yeah, I really want them. But did you see how much they are? I, I saw that price and I'm like, there's no way that $500. And here's the thing is yeah. I don't think I could pull those sunglasses off because I have a big, stupid fucking head. <laughs> and I don't know if I could wear it. And I mean, if I had 500 bucks, just like, you know, blow because I made tons of money, then I might consider it. But because nobody else can wear them and it's i was reading that's the first time his estate which is just his daughter um allowed someone to like license something that he's done mm -hmm. and because he was really protective of his image so right. um yeah no it's really cool and yeah so it's uh, you know i the, the two films we're talking about i mean I, awful truth i think is pretty highly revered as one of the greatest screwball comedies ever Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I was doing some research, obviously knowing that I was going to be on your show on top of the research I've already done before. Um, and you know, I found that, uh, Mr. Lucky is pretty highly rated too, as far as critically. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those films that you have, like, this is the thing that I noticed right off the bat with Rotten Tomatoes is like, if a film's made before a certain point, it only has a few critics entering in the numbers, but it's nine reviews and it's unanimous. The ratings on IMDb are super high. It, it it seems like nobody has a bad word to say about Mr. Lucky. Um, it, it it's it's quite astounding, and it's also and it's and we have to keep in mind it's a film that no one really talks about. Like it's not it, it's not caught up in conversation that much when it comes to Cary Grant and his legacy. And I think a lot of that has to do with it, part of it has to do with I would imagine is that because Cary Grant was so iconic he made so many iconic films and classic performances that even the ones that are undiscovered gems kind of f have a hard way navigating through the cultural sphere. Yeah. And I, I think too, because um, I mean, I don't know what order you're going to, we're going to talk about him, but it plays against his type while mm -hmm. also playing into who he is. I don't know if that makes any sense. 
No, it, it totally does. And we'll, we're going to start with The Awful Truth from 1937, directed by Leo McCary, because um, it's important to understand the Grant persona in order to get you to a point like Mr. Lucky, I feel. Um, it's definitely... Um, it, and there's a little bit of background that we should discuss, um, not just about The Awful Truth, but also about Grant at this point. Um, and you, you've talked about it multiple times, but there, there's this comes at a point when Cary Grant... Well, one, he's becoming freelance, but number two, he's been in roles that aren't servicing him as well as they ought to because they haven't been able to pin down what he can do. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that there's like like it's funny. Mae West wanted him like ha- requested him for two movies and gave him virtually nothing to do, like from all account. And so it's like it's interesting how this this vaudevillian turned actor who comes into Hollywood is able to keep afloat for as long as he does up until the awful truth. Yeah, what's interesting too is I, is I don't know how far you've gone back in the grand filmography, but even when you watch his early stuff, you you can see there's glimmers there of the person he can be. Yeah. Um, but you're right. He wasn't give he was given a lot of, hey, I'm that handsome guy in the tuxedo roles. Which he also has in The Awful Truth, but Leo McCary does something that no one's ever done with Grant before, and that's really play into his vaudevillian roots. Right. And I think that the earliest that I've gotten in that I can recall is Sylvia Scarlet. Mm-hmm. Um, Sylvia Scarlet, and that's primarily because it's Catherine Hepburn, and I'm going to be you know, trending toward Hepburn, but also Sylvia Scarlet is a... Uh, it's a film by George Cukor. He obviously has a lot of history in the business. Obviously, he ended up doing bringing up baby and the Philadelphia story and holiday with Hepburn and Grant. So they, they have that history. But Sylvia Scarlet is a film that kind of gets talked about in the grand scheme of like certain things. It um, yeah, he's, uh, he's great in that, too, because he uh, does. Uh, he plays a Cockney guy mm-hmm. and he's really funny in it. Um, but it's more of a Kate Hepburn movie. Yeah, she's great in it, too. I mean, it's it's an OK film. It's just really hard because she plays. <laughs> she's supposed to play a boy. Yeah. But, uh, and- Catherine Hepburn's so feminine that it, I mean, it, I don't buy it. I don't care how much they hide her <laughs> hair or whatever, but. <laughs> Um, I think it's the attitude that it in Hepburn with Hepburn. We always talk about the attitude. Like there's the, there's that personality that she exuded that, you know, she could play, she could rumble with the boys. And like, that was the, that was the era. That was the attitude that she, it's funny. The Philadelphia story does the same thing where it's just like, she is able to go toe to toe with not just Grant, but Stewart all at once. So, um, but yeah, that would be the earliest because I recently re I recently watched big brown eyes, um, in the collection that you gave me, which I thought was, uh, it was a way darker film than I thought it was going to be. Oh yeah. Like just an absolutely, uh, he's pretty great in that too. Yeah, he is. And I think, I mean, Joe, I think Joan Bennett's the real draw in that film in terms of, Oh yeah. She's, she's astounding in that. And then also you got Walter Pigeon in there. And so there's a lot of things that you can, uh, go into with it. But so, yes, as you said at this point, like there, there are moments in there but it isn't until we get the awful truth that we actually get the um, the the reasons we remember Grant today start. It's arguably start with the awful truth in terms of just like the full formation of it. Up till that point, it seems like bits and pieces are kind of entering their way in slowly, um, and then the awful truth as a film, the way it comes, it, the way it comes together is. It, and you know a lot more about this than I do. It's really interesting. It's based off of a play uh, by Arthur Richmond. It had been made into a silent film, 
uh, with Warner Baxter and Agnes Ares. And then it was a sound version from Pathé Exchange with Ina Claire and he- Henry Danielle. And that f- version is lost. So the awful truth that we have today is the only adaptation of it with sound that still exists. Um, but McCary um, uh, uh, gets the project and he, he needed work, essentially. He, like, he, he had already made Make Way for Tomorrow, which there's a story about how McCary feels about winning an Oscar for Awful Truth and not Make Way for Tomorrow, which is also available on Criterion. Um, but he, um, he basically, he got another, he got, he got the, um, the screenwriter, um, Vina Delmar, to basically shift things around and change it up. And what ends up happening with this film is that a lot of it is improvised. So it's like you're given a template for what to do in the scene. And as we know, growing up today, there's more than enough of that when it comes to comedy. Like th- like a lot of comedies have that improv style, mainly thanks to Judd Apatow kind of pushing it forward with his films. Um, when you watch The Awful Truth the first time, do you did you get any impression that any of it was improvised? Oh, not at all. Um, <laughs> I-, I think that's what's so great about the film. And if you get the criterion, they, they have a great documentary about the making of it. And Cary Grant did not like McCary at all. Mm-hmm. He didn't like it wasn't structured. He didn't like improvising. And I don't know if that was more of him being nervous about um, the opportunity what McCary was trying to attempt and he was so used to the structured ways of Paramount. Um, but he, he tried to get off the picture. He offered to do like two pictures for free mm-hmm. and give back the money he was given for the film. Yeah. And he was never let, he, they said no, because you know, it's they're basically they've already invested in it. There's, they're basically going to tell him no. And, uh, so he, yeah, he, yeah he, he was against it. And so was Irene Dunn. And so was Ralph Bellamy. They did not get along, um, not with each other, but with McCary. Funny you bring up Bellamy because there is a, there, there is a, uh, <laughs> he was, uh, he was told, uh, he was told to show up on the set um, uh, on a Monday for filming with no script, no dialogue, or even any iota of what the scene was going to be. And he went to uh, the director, Leo McCary, for help. Um, and he and the quote is, he just joshed and said, not to worry, we'd have lots of fun, but there wasn't any script. <laughs> and so yeah. you you get and, and there's a lot of this has to do actually with, you know, when they're singing, when they're singing at the piano in the film. But oh, yeah. you you get the sense that that's where I started noticing uh after so I hadn't watched the film in a while. Um, and when I got the criterion finally and sat down and rewatched it, I was amazed to be like, okay, this is the moment where you can start to see that there's, this is clearly either improvised or this is just like superb acting on Bellamy's part. And I think it's a combination of the two. Cause Ralph Bellamy is a classic, is a classic golden age Hollywood actor to discuss in terms of like they, he always got the shaft when it comes to the girl, he's got a, uh, a, a cemented fixture in Hollywood history. Um, and McCary, it feels like he, he, when you watch the film, like the coverage is um, very scant 
It's not like th- there's not a lot of cutaway. It like it really lays into the scene. And he didn't. Um, he basically did editing in camera, which is something that many directors, if they're good at their job at this time, are doing because that's how they end up making films with a specific vision. Houston does this. Hitchcock does it also, although Hitchcock's is also goes into meticulous details in a different fashion. Um, but Leo McCary as a director, he, I think what The Awful Truth does, I think it just cements the fact that he knows how to make a screwball comedy the way um, the way nobody else can. Like Howard Hawks comes close to it, um, but uh, uh, arguably McCary is kind of like the forefront of how to make the ultimate version of that. And then what's interesting is that after this, he really steps away from that genre and goes to movies like Going My Way, Bells of St. Mary, and Affair to Remember, where um, it, it, where he is, his style is, is fully defined as a filmmaker in those films, but he does step aside from that screwball era. Um, it should also be noted that, I, I mean... I would take a guess, Ryan, and say that both of our first Leo McCary movies were duck was Duck Soup because, because yeah, that was one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, what he does in Duck Soup is bring a cinematic approach to the Marx Brothers that I, th- I personally feel doesn't exist in the films leading up to it. Um, there are great moments in and great stories to be watched in Coconuts, Monkey Business, Animal Crackers. And um, horse feathers, and horse feathers being my favorite of their bunch, but duck soup is the one that brings a little bit more of a cinematic style to it. So when you have McCary coming on for this kind of screwball comedy, he's working in a genre that's already established. People like Carol Lombard and Catherine Hepburn and um, and others are already kind of putting their stamp on this genre. And McCary comes in with the awful truth and goes like, I'm not only going to do that, I'm also going to define the divorce comedy genre with this movie. Because this is a genre that has gone on to exist to this day. <laughs> and arguably he creates it. Um, and the awful truth, I, 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 I will say that when you... If you're if you watch the film prior to listening to this episode, the big thing to take away from it is just like how charming both Grant and Dunn are. Um, and it's easy to see why you would fall in love with Irene Dunn with this movie, because there's there's nothing in her performance that uh, suggests that you'd ever get annoyed with her for one second. You know, I would say that Irene Dunn is maybe one of the greatest comedians of all time. I think her timing is impeccable. I think she understands comedy better than a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. She knows she how to tune to it. Yeah. Oh, like she is. Cause not only this, but she, I mean, I've seen her in several other films and she's in two other grant films, Penny Serenade, which is more of a drama, but in uh, my favorite wife, she's amazing too. Oh my God. She makes you cry at the end of that movie. Jesus Christ. Like she's such a great actress. And I, you know, I was watching an interview with her and she was talking about Carrie and um, her relationships with him and everything. And Carrie Grant told her that she's the funniest female he's ever worked with. And that makes clear. And that she's also sense. the best smelling. So um, <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure you said co-star. I think I'm butchering the quote a little bit. But basically, Grant recognized the greatness that is Irene Dunn. <laughs> and I mean, in the in the film, they play, you know, a married couple that's getting a divorce because they each suspect the other one's cheating on them. Yes. 
And what it does is just sets up basically like, I don't want to say skits, but moments in the film. It's episodic. It's episodic. Yeah, because Ralph Bellamy, you know, is the rich suitor for Irene Dunn. But she's really just dating him to make Cary Grant's character jealous. Yeah, Dan Dan Leeson, played by Ralph Bellamy, who is um, very in love with the Oklahoma lifestyle. Like he's this 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 good old. It, it's it's um it, it you know uh, very proud of his roots. It's very very like I was like oh you ought to see Oklahoma. You ought to get out there. And and by the way, Aunt Patsy, um Lucy's aunt Patsy, played by Cecil Cunningham. She um she she can't remember jack crap about where where Dan Leeson lives. She's yeah. like, for Aunt Patsy, this involvement with Dan is just like, look, I want to get out of this fucking house. <laughs> I don't want to pout with you anymore. And then she's just like, well, I didn't expect you to fall in love with him. I wanted you to have a fling for a second. Like, <laughs> um, it's and it's interesting. Like, it's a real you know. There's a there's a notion about. Uh, films of this era that they're not risque or they're tame or they're milk toast white bread and whatnot. But the truth is, is that it's not that it's not there. It's just it's not being explicitly said with um, curse words, <laughs> which because um, this film is full of innuendo and full of oh, yeah. imagery that which is a testament to McCary knowing how to cut away to certain things. I mean, the biggest the biggest one is at the end with the clock <laughs> with the clock. I love that clock. That that this those the them eventually going in the same hole together is is just a delight. Um, yeah. And um, but you're right. This, this plot starts off with, you know, they're they get a divorce because they don't trust each other. And part of it is, and this is really, I will say, it is Jerry's fault because he didn't have to give her that orange and try yeah, to convince well, that, her that well, she went to Florida. He's at the the health club getting a tan because he's supposed to be in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> But but little does Cary Grant realize it's been raining in Florida. <laughs> you should have read about it in the paper. Um, and then that and then that leads to the 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 divorce court, which I I mean talk about setting the tone for as we said a um uh, uh, the divorce comedy genre that where crazy things will happen in the courtroom. They fight over the dog, Mister Smith. Oh yeah, that's great. Um, and it's. It's one of those like wonderful moments. Like you see this in movies down the line. It was funny when I was rewatching it the other day. I was like, "Isn't it interesting how Airbud kind of stole this whole scene and tried to make it into an entire climax of a movie?" Yeah. <laughs> like, this is this is bananas. I want to bring up uh, Mr. Smith for a second. He's played by uh, a dog named Skippy, um, but you wouldn't just know him from this film. He's also none other than Asta, world's greatest uh, detective dog in the Thin Man series. Um, this is this is an incredible dog. And as we see in a scene later after Dan and um, Lucy have started commiserating with each other, <laughs> Jerry comes in because he has visitation rights with this dog. <laughs> yep. And one of the things that reminded me when you had talked about it on the show like oh yeah awful truth is wonderful is when he goes in for that visitation with the dog and is basically playing the piano and distracting dan and lucy from their date by playing dog playing piano with the dog and cueing him in like they're training for a vaudeville act like and it really does give you a sense of grant the showman which 
this is one of those reasons why I wish there was more filming of vaudeville acts of that era, if it were possible, to maybe see what Grant did in vaudeville as an acrobat and anything else he might have had to do to make through and get by, just to see what that showmanship looked like. Because when he comes, even when he comes into his first films or this one especially, he already feels like he's fully formed because most actors most actors would feel that way because they already had showbiz training of some sort, primarily through vaudeville. Um, and like, I know that's a, certainly the case for most comedians, like most comedians that come in on this, uh, on the screen from the stage, they already feel fully formed because they already have an act going on. And the films are usually capitalizing on that act. And then what you see is them develop even further over time. Um, and Grant is just, I think this is the moment you fall in love with Grant as a character in this movie, because up to this point he is, you know, going behind Irene Dunn's back and then the divorce stuff. And Irene Dunn's given a lot of chances to shine in that courtroom scene. But then this scene happens and you're like, you can't hate Jerry. You just can't hate him. Like you can't hate a man who is that, uh, lovable and charming with his dog. And then as the movie goes on, you grow to care about Jerry as you care about Irene Dunn because arguably you're going through Irene Dunn's perspective for a good chunk of the movie because you're seeing Jerry kind of pop in and out of her life. Yeah. And then by the time everything goes through this plot and wraps itself up, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of in between one of them being this, this nightclub scene where, you know, Dan has already, uh, Dan and uh, Lucy are already well into their relationship. And Jerry is seeing, seeing this uh, Southern singer, <laughs> Dixie Bell, <laughs> who, w- can we talk about really quickly? So w- w- before the pandemic hit, you and I went to go see this in a movie theater at the Alamo Draft House, And yeah, I don't know if you remember the sh- the the shock on my face not at a line in this movie but the reaction to it was what? um when when she's ta- when he's talking to Dixie Bell Lee he goes so how long have you been talking like Amos and Andy <laughs> yeah and i was like and i and I've, i'd heard the line and i was like oh that's a line that may not have aged well there was laughter around us in this theater i'm like they know who Amos and Andy are and also is I question their laughing right now because <laughs> like, Amos and Andy for listeners who aren't familiar is a minstrel radio show. Essentially it is a, it was two characters played by Freeman Gosden and Charles Carell, not donning black face on the radio. They were white men who played black characters. And when you hear Dixie bell, like you're, you, you, this is a modern reference that I don't that 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 doesn't a, a contemporary reference that does not really work today. But I just found it interesting that like our audience must have been around our age range. I didn't see like many older people in there, so it's like this is interesting. Yeah. Like them laughing at this, like it's not a bad thing to laugh at because it they could be laughing ironically like we would. But I just found it fascinating to be like, <laughs> you know, and it just proves like how great the actors and the movie are. I mean, this movie is eighty three years old, mm-hmm. and the the comedy is universal mm-hmm. and it, you know watching it like i said you know grant started trusting mccary after he realized that the imp- improvisational is bringing in his vaudevillian days you know he has a lot of pratfalls in this um 
even like a, a silly joke of him putting on a hat that doesn't fit him. Oh, um, hat scene. You know, when he's, uh, when Irene Dunn is hiding all the other men in her room because um, Ralph Bellamy is coming up mm-hmm. and then Carrie realizes her dashing music teacher is in there. <laughs> um, and, you know, when we were at the theater, one, I was surprised because it was almost sold out and people were just enjoying it. And as a classic Hollywood or golden Hollywood fan, it, it, it just fills my heart with joy yeah. because it's, it means these pictures and these stars will never die. They will always live on because it's always funny, no matter how old it is, you know, these films, and I'm glad you're really doing this podcast, they come with a stigma of, they're really stiff or they're not funny because they're in black and white. And that's just not true. I, when we talk about our second movie, you know, my, my little boy sat down and he was saying, daddy, a black and white movie. And then he started watching it. (laughs) You can get into it. Um, Daddy, a black and white movie. Shut up. You little jerk. (laughs) Yeah. You watch this movie. If you know, what's good for you, Um, but you like Spielberg with his children. children. (laughs) I think that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the awful truth is so near and dear to my heart because it made me want to go on this journey of Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. And um, it's maybe the m- most fun I've had on a uh, series that I do. Because if you listen to my podcast, Real Nerds Podcast, you know I'm always doing something new. I'm new director, new actor new genre, something to keep me motivated to watch new stuff. I've got like several article series going on right now in a, at a rate that I never even got to on the website when I was writing for it. Cause like, I know it's crazy. I've, and I have about five other ones that I'm still working on. Um, but the yeah. grant one took me the longest. It, I, that one took me three weeks to write because I wanted to, when I wrote it too, to explain who grant was, and why I I truly enjoyed him. And I think why I loved going on this journey uh, that started with The Awful Truth is I've seen a lot of movies I hadn't seen before. And I think that's why Grant is so great, too, and why he's considered one of the greatest movie stars of all time is because you can't help but enjoy your time with him. And you realize how many great movies he's been in and it all started with me with the awful truth. And I, I didn't know that he was this great of a comedian or this great of a physical performer. Yeah. Because and my only exposure to him was, like I said, you know, North by Northwest and charade. And I mean, he's great in those movies and I'm not disparaging him, but to go back, you know, 25 years and watch <laughs> him in this stuff. And you just see, this is why he's the most popular star, one of the most popular stars of all time. Yeah, it, it's, and... I will say that what's interesting about what you say is, is that because North by Northwest and Charade have his comedic persona, but they're but the objective is different. And with yeah. with these earlier films, you get a sense of like why he charmed everybody to the point where he could get into films like because Suspicion, I'd argue, is a response to the grant persona in a lot of ways because it plays with the persona and then twists it around as much as it can because oh yeah obviously as we discussed on the first shamley episode 
the 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 persona is only allowed to stretch so far before some some outside force not in Grant's control or Hitchcock's control says no 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 <laughs> you can be like yeah. you hitch you can't let him be the murderer well right now to be fucking cool like this this you would not expect him to do it and he needs to do Carrie I want you to murder somebody right fucking now <laughs> like this this guy had such a such a lovable persona he also as we also know within this film and the majority of his films he is not pursuing women women are pursuing him mm-hmm. which is which is a big thing to understand about the grand persona because of the fact that whenever he breaks that mold um it ends up being quite fascinating and arguably in the awful truth is is where it it's it's not only where the persona starts and where that trope starts but it also is the definition of his continental uh style with that the the wikipedia calls it a transatlantic accent because <laughs> it's hard. he had it um it, you know not too many he's just sounded unique mm-hmm. and his delivery was always unique and i think that's why he just crushed it and um it's it is really a treat watching him perform because he is so good and like I said, this is my favorite movie of his. Mm-hmm. I just, I've, since I've watched this, I forget, I'm pretty sure it's 2019 when the, maybe it's 2018. I can't remember. Whenever this Blu-ray came out, it was my favorite Blu-ray of the year. Um, I've watched it probably five or six times. Um, and every time I find something new. And what's, how amazing the improvisation, improvisational part is, is that one scene where he's playing hide and seek with the dog. I mean, you you have to see it to appreciate it. I, I don't know if I'm doing it justice. I mean, I know I'm gushing over this movie, but I, I tell everybody, you have to see this film. And if you give it a chance, I know it's old, but it, it's timeless. And um, I mean, it's so timeless that it's it's in Cong- the National Congress archive. It's on the registry. Like, it is... Yeah. And the, the registry, I know, obviously, like people have their opinions when it comes to institutions like AFI or even the Library of Congress's film registries and stuff like that. But these are films that because they have stood out, you know, it would behoove people to go back to them with them being as preserved as they are now. Um, yeah. You know, and McCary, like if we go into the post like script of it all. Well, first, the, let's talk about the ending of the movie, because I think it's interesting how it um uh, how it resolves itself um, because it it's it at at a certain point Dunn and Grant realize that they care for each other but uh, uh, Grant has fallen for another woman and then Dunn sabotages it <laughs> and they go to a they go to Dunn's uh, Dunn's relative's cabin and there they have this bedroom tete-a-tete with each other where a door keeps getting blown open or a cat keeps opening a door. <laughs> like, yeah. This, this, just this wonderful bit where they basically are on a ticking. It's like, um, it's kind of like a Hitchcock bomb under the table where at midnight, their divorce becomes final. And <laughs> at the last minute they go into bed with each other and there's this cuckoo clock that keeps indicating the time. And it shows a man and woman in Dutch garb, 
passing through by each other and then going into their separate doors. And then the last shot of the clock as you to indicate that they are going to get it on uh, is the um, is the the guy uh, figure in the uh, in the clock going into the door with the woman figure in the clock. And then that's how we end the movie. And I think it's a I mean, obviously, we talk about like, you know, what, what you can get away with and not get away with in a film of this era. This is post the code being really established. So innuendo and insinuation are very important to getting a theme like what the the awful truth is trying to tackle intact. And I think it's a it's something you can't do today because I think it has been overused. But McCary is somebody who kind of establishes how to do it correctly. You don't focus on the gag. You focus on the characters and then the gag lends itself to the characters. Um, and the the legacy of this film as a result this movie that nobody wanted to be a part of and that nobody got uh, was like feeling confident about uh it was it made over three million dollars which would have been 53 million dollars in 2019 dollars made a profit of five hundred thousand, and uh and the uh, the film has was regarded as a classic it was nominated for six academy awards for best picture best director best actress best supporting actor best writing and best editing and McCary wins for yeah yeah and you you McCary wins for director but who's missing from this fucking list man <laughs> i know it's it's, it's actually unbelievable it, it's i mean it has a lot to do with how the politics in hollywood worked at that time um because at the time grant well, refused to sign with the studio yeah and he has he's freelance at this point the the contract he signs with uh Columbia is a uh it's you make four films over the course of two years, but they all have to be prestige pictures, is what I was reading. So like he's yeah. not he's freelancing, but like he's it's non committal. Like it's not a it's a non exclusive contract. Yeah, exactly. What it is is he can he has to make the four movies that he's contractually obligated to make, but he can make any other movies he wants to make. Yeah. In between, he can kind of go wherever he'd like to. And the, uh, in, in the first yesteryear episode, we talked about how Boris Karloff basically made that same arrangement after walking out on universal and then going back to universal. They were like, we'll, we'll sign you to this many pictures and you also have the right to work at other studios. So like, and these are examples of actors who were able to make their own, uh, decisions in Hollywood, which is difficult at the time because, as we'll probably talk about a bunch on this show, many of the actors of the era are signed by a studio, assigned the pictures, they do them, no matter what their, uh, what, what their feelings about the project are. Sometimes they're able to refuse them, but more often than not, they were told by the studio heads, get it done. And Grant was not going to play that game. Um, and I think he got, if you correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, is it because he, he got burned by Paramount? I think it was like, they kind of, yeah, uh, he got tired of doing the movies that they asked him to do. And he was like Gary Cooper's replacement. So if Gary Cooper didn't make the movie, then they'd offer it to him. And because he didn't have the pole of Cooper at the time, he basically had to make them. <laughs> Gary, you going to make this movie? Nope. Should we give it to Grant? Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really unusual. Um, it, it you know like it it's funny though how many actors who do who who pass on certain roles end up making another person's career. 
Because, like, that's what Bogart went through. Like, George Raft is responsible for half of Bogart's success. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, really he kept saying, no, I won't do High Sierra. No, I won't do Maltese Falcon. Casa, what now? No, I don't think so. I don't want to work at a cafe. Um, and, you know, like, it's it's pretty astounding. And, like, these this film that we've that we've just been gushing over what's funny is McCary said he should have won director for make way for tomorrow which is you know if you watch make way for tomorrow it is a very well done american drama film um and victor moore is wonderful in it uh, as is beulah bondi but i i think that if i had to be honest i'm glad that he wins for something like the awful truth because it helps establish the screwball genre as something that's not just frivolous. Because mm. um, a drama will win an Oscar any time, no matter what. But it's also a testament to McCary's abilities as a director that he gets the award for this because of what he did on the production. What he gets out of Grant, what he gets out of Dunn and Bellamy. He is truly stepping above and beyond, and he kind of helps innovate a style of filmmaking that we absolutely see today. Like Judd Apatow doesn't, and his improvisational style doesn't happen without McCary showing you that it's possible. And there are other directors who did this before McCary, but McCary with the, with the awful truth, it cements it in film legacy. Like there's a reason this film is still on a pedestal or over discussed is because it does carry those qualities. Um, yeah. And there's um, with the awful truth. There were other versions of it. The Lux Radio Theater did a version in 1939. Grant and Claudette Colbert were in this adaptation, um, and then Dunn reply re- reprised the role uh, for the Goodyear program on CBS in 1944 with Walter Pigeon playing the role of Jerry. And then Dunn and Grant appeared in a 60 minute version of the awful truth on Lux Radio Theater in 1955. Um, and then the the movie inspired a music. The play itself inspired a musical called "Let's Do It Again" with Jane Wyman and Ray Milland. Uh, so this this concept still keeps going. And I'd argue that a lot of divorce movies would love to latch back onto this material if they were. I mean, they're not as made as often today. Um, and I think that the divorce genre has become a little bit more realistic to the point where this kind of slapstick or not slaps a screwballness doesn't really work like we watched marriage story last year it's a funny movie but it's also very not funny in many moments so like and yeah. and at points scary like adam driver in that scene in the living room is still terrifying um but that so this this really puts grant on uh, not on the map so much as just like this this really cements his style um and then some years go by he makes other films but in 1943, he's um, working with RKO. He's placed into a film called Mr. Lucky, directed by H.C. Potter, who is a director that I am not terribly familiar with other than a movie, other than two movies, Mr. Blanding's Build His Dream Home, which is another Cary Grant film, but also Hell's a Poppin', which is going to be an episode on this show. <laughs> that, and is- that is an Olsen and Johnson joint where the first 15 minutes is fucking insane. Um, so uh, stay tuned for that one. But we're going to talk Mr. Lucky. So, Ryan, this was one that you introduced to me. And I think it's only fair that you 
give a little bit of background on Mr. Lucky or and just kind of set the audience up for what this movie is, unless they've already watched it, in which case they already have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> come with us. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a different kind of film. It's, it's about a con man or um, I, I guess you'd call him a con man named Joe Adams, who is it takes place in 1941. So the war in Europe is really going strong and men are starting to be drafted. Well, Cary Grant, Joe Adams is such a physical specimen like he is. Uh, he's <laughs> deemed as a one a where he's going to be drafted and super healthy, but he's also a con man. So um, maybe a con man is too strong, maybe a gambler. Um, but he in fitting with his title, he basically gambles with another man who is a three F or two. I forget the actual designation, but four F four F is the one. Yeah. Yeah. He can't go because um, he has a weak heart. And so he owns a boat and they play poker for their draft cards. And Joe Adams wins the draft card that he's not going to be going to war because he only cares about himself he only cares about making money so he takes the id of uh some a greek joe, guy yeah joe Bascopoulos. yeah joe Bascopoulos, and he meets the beautiful lorraine day who plays a young woman named dorothy and she is part of the war effort and they're raising bonds to help the men overseas and they sell tickets for this and Joe realizes he might be able to swindle money from this organization and make a lot of money off of the war effort. Mm -hmm. And he puts together a huge casino night type of deal where he's going to end up with a lot of money. But in the meantime, although he gave him his draft card that he's going to be drafted, the guy that lost, um, turns out he has asthma. Do I remember that right? And um, oh, he has no, high, high blood pressure. Yeah, high blood pressure. Yeah. High blood pressure. Yeah. And um, so he can't go. So it sets up this kind of showdown between the two. Yeah, uh, Zepp, played by Paul Stewart, who, and I'm going to talk about Paul Stewart a little bit more in a second. But that that scene where he gets rejected, <laughs> I love the line where he's like, "It's oh, it's crushing him. He really wanted to serve his country." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so th what you've just described is a movie where, from if you're listening to it carefully, you understand that Cary Grant is playing quite a jerk in the movie. Quite oh yeah, a, he is not a good dude in this movie. Not not a good dude. And and what's more, he uh he but here and, and the thing that when we talked about the grand persona earlier, we're talking about this charm no matter what you do. And in the awful truth, it's obviously, well, he lied to Irene Dunn and what wins us over is kind of that in interaction with the dog and just his his bravado around. In this film, you are put through the ringer on like how much can you put up with the Cary Grant persona regardless of what he's getting away with because there is a lot of like when he's going through his volunteer duties for the war relief effort, he is 
muscling people. He is beating them. Then he, he he lies. I mean, his his whole goal is not to help the Americans fighting overseas. Mm-hmm. It to line his pockets with money, and yeah. throughout the first I don't know maybe hour of the movie, he's not a good person. He's always cheating. He's always lying. You know, he steals the six thousand dollars from the charity when he goes to the bank. The bank. Yep to to fund to fund the gambling concession itself. Exactly, and he's just not a good person. And um, Lorraine Day's Dorothy kind of starts changing him, and he realizes that maybe this isn't what he should be doing. However, he never truly learns his lesson. Um, He's more of he, he still plays the gambler. Um, and I think this is why this movie is so great and why I, I, I before we even were doing this podcast, I said, hey, you should check this film out. I think you because <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'll get to it. There's like 500 other Jack Benny things. I Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing is Brand's Grant's persona actually amplifies um, Joe in this mm-hmm. where he's still really handsome he talks in that rhyming um, way where he teaches Dorothy how to do it. Oh, you mean Australian slang. I have in front of me, I took note of every single one that I could possibly hear clearly. Oh. Um, Ryan, it's it's this is a little segment we're going to do on the show called Learn Australian Slang. It's a one-time thing that will never happen again. But Ryan, what is a suit? It's a fiddle and a fluke. What's a hat? It's a tit for tat. A girl is a twist and a tur- twirl. A bloke is a heap of coke. So you and I are a heap of cokes right now. Uh, nice. We're also pots and pans because that's a man. Uh, shoes are ones and twos. Cheese and kisses, well, that's a missus. Lady from Bristol, it's just a gun. Uh, bottle and stopper, must be a cop. Uh, and briny marlin is your darling. Never give us, and, oh, and, and, just, and I'm sorry, north and south is lips. This the the yeah. slang scenes are such a they're so adorable even though you know this guy is stealing from the war relief effort from charity let's like let's not if to give it in a modern context the war relief of this era designed it was designed the way most charities are designed right now to whether it's to help soldiers overseas or help war torn countries overseas that's that's why he's not a good person <laughs> yeah and it's, you know, he, he, he does change towards the end, mm-hmm. yes. but it, um, why I, I told you to watch this one is cause I wanted you to, uh, cause it's a movie that I said, man, you know, Grant is so suave in this movie that as a con man, he's really good. And, yeah. you know, the, and He's even which which is really hard when you watch it until as the reveal starts happening in on the gambling ship. What's really hard is how he played Dorothy throughout the whole movie, mm-hmm. and even though he's falling for her, he still has um, ulterior motives. Yeah, um, he he's... really doesn't even change his mind until the gangsters show up on his ship, right? Or... And... And, and when he kind of learns a little bit more about the Boscopolis character, because Boscopolis has a record and that's what puts him at risk um, with this identity switch. Um, and 
you know, you're right. When you when you pitched it to me, I was like, well, this sounds interesting because we kind of just talked suspicion and we were talking in that shamley about, you know, how far can you stretch this persona? And when I finally sat down and watched it this year, this was like months ago, and I was like, oh, my God, like this is like one my my immediate thought was like this is like this is a a forebearer of what you get with an oceans 11 movie and i'm not talking the frank sinatra version i'm talking what soderbergh would do down the line where you know danny ocean's not danny ocean's a con man but he's so lovable that any any indecent thing he does is kind of redeemed this one though is super raw in its form and you're dealing with world war ii and the war effort the movie does serve as a, a taste of propaganda if you will but i but unlike the propaganda films we've talked about in the uh past i think it's one where it's more about like the the effort itself and helping other people and less about yeah. you know your enemy which which are two different um uh two different genres of the propaganda film of this era i, I would argue um and you know, we we have like a we have a slew of other actors in this film that really kind of help help uh, kind of really uh, uh, flesh things out. But there's a scene that we got to talk about because I think if, if if anybody knows this film, I would imagine it would be a YouTube clip of the particular scene. So at a certain point, uh, Joe is decides like, well, I've got to work my way into this organization, so I'm going to volunteer for it. And Lorraine Day's, uh, uh, Lorraine Day's character, um, basically said like Dorothy says, okay, you want to be involved, you got to knit. And he goes, well, wait a minute, I'm a man, I don't knit. And she goes like, no, we need men knitting, and in front of that window out front to show that everybody's pitched in and involved in this. So there's a scene where Cary Grant is taught how to knit. And you this is Grant at his fine one of his finest physical performances because you have an older lady showing him how to knit and it's so subtle. He's fumbling around with this needle. You see the frustration boiling inside of him. <laughs> like like yeah. this this like and it's now when we talk about this scene we're not talking about like pointing out like oh isn't it funny that a man's doing a woman's thing that's not what this is this is this is grant truly frustrated like bringing frustration into a role at the time this was a well this is what women do joke now you kind of look at it and what follows in that scene which is i think it's crunk his um his sidekick uh, takes over the knitting and then the following scene is him showing the fellow gangsters how to knit <laughs> yeah (laughs) wonderful wonderful little moment of just like oh it's it's cool everybody's pitching in um but that scene is like i i've looked up when i look up mr lucky on youtube that clip pops up so i think that that's the one that people would know this from but when you watch the entire film you realize it's much darker than that one gag um and uh and also him gam uh, him uh conning the blanket man out of his blankets (laughs) With yeah. the coin, that's a really well put together sequence. I really enjoy that. Like, and he's he's on his suave game so much. Like, it's that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, he's he's yes, he's doing something wrong, but he's doing he's so he's playing like that anti-hero kind of figure of just like, oh well, yes, I'm gonna scam this one guy, but it's gonna help this war relief thing. 
but it'll also get me closer to stealing all their money at a casino night. <laughs> so, <laughs> and someone like Grant is probably the only person that can pull it off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know you love Bogart, but I don't think he has the softness that Grant has. And, um, yeah. and I, don't, I don't know if he could do a role like that because no. you have to still like him, even though you're stuck with him and he makes horrible decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you, because you have to get to the end. I mean, and at the at the end, I mean, he brutally murders a dude. Yes. So let let's talk about that because this. So the so the gangster. We, we, as we're jumping into this, we'll talk a, a brief bit about Paul Stewart as Zepp because he is he is a dastardly fella, almost to the equal of what Joe is doing, but obviously much more sinister. So that when he dies, it's not a big deal to us, the audience, because he's the bad guy. But Paul Stewart was um, uh, a, a, a collaborator with a, a a certain gentleman who would become portly in his later years and would make um, some classics of cinema that are you know questioned amongst film lovers. Um, but he was an associate producer of the radio program War of the Worlds, and he would make his film debut in Citizen Kane, playing Kane's butler near the end, who goes, Rosebud, I can tell you about Rosebud. And when you watch Paul Stewart and hear him talk in the movie, you're like, oh, it's Raymond. It's Raymond the butler. Um, but he was in a lot of other films of the of the era, obviously. He worked through, worked through as a consummate professional actor. This, um, this role, he's basically scamming. He's double-crossing Grant because now that he doesn't have to be drafted, he gets the letter that indicates that Joe Bascopoulos is uh, – needs to report to his parole board or he'll, or he'll be um, in trouble. And uh, he basically uh, is in on the whole game to steal the money. And then when Grant has a change of heart, he really lays into it. Um, at this point, Dorothy discovers what's happened with the casino night. Grant has to punch her out so that Stuart doesn't hurt her. And then he they're they're gathering up the money grant sees a moment to punch out stewart and then stewart gets knocked but then stewart shoots him in the gut and in a very brutal scene i'd argue like i mean when you watch the way it's constructed like grant getting shot is brutal and then he fucking lays into stewart like he fucking kicks that shit out of that guy oh yeah he he knocks his it's it's brutal for its era like it's like the the only modern equivalent that i have for it is if you've seen the curb stomping in american history x it's about it's about as intense for the era as you get with that kind of um uh action in mind um and grant escapes and there's blood dripping off of the stairway and so like he's murdered a guy he's conned a war relief He's lied and beaten up people for money um, or for goods and services for war relief. He has, like, pushed the likability so much. Now, I had a question for you in regards to this. Do you think, because this film is in World War II and because the things that he ends up doing in order to get things for the war relief, do you think audiences of the era are seeing this as sort of an anti-hero or are they kind of seeing it in the 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 clear-cut terms of good guy versus bad because i it seems like this would be an anti-hero story ultimately yeah i i mean i think so too i think it's a a guy who stands up to um 
the 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 establishment, but at the same time realizes that he has a duty to America. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really fascinating uh, study, and because it's hard for me to say one way or the other, because obviously I wasn't around at that time. But I do know that in research for this, it was the the second most popular movie of the year. Yeah, the 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 what was the first one? Because you may be looking at the same information that I have. the 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 bigger success for RKO of this year was a movie called Hitler's Children, which oh, is yeah. which is a lurid expose of the Hitler Youth and follows the world the woes of an American girl declared legally German by the Nazi government. Uh, so it's that, which I've got to see what this is. It's got Tim Holt in it. And I'm, now I'm interested because this sounds incredibly insane, but this was Eric RKO's second most successful film this year. Um, and keep in mind, this is also while they're still in the middle of their Val Luton, they're just getting started with their Val Luton pictures at this time. Um, um so, to, and so it makes sense that this film has a popularity that it does. Then if you're, you're 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 really settling into this is wartime in America, and we've got we've got a job to do. And Grant does play into that can-do spirit of America while having the smarminess that we can have as a people. <laughs> like there's a there's a combo factor of it that I think really works. Like the attitude is there. Um, yeah. And then, but, but and the ending. I will tell you the the bookends of this film fascinate me because as I was rewatching it um, this morning, I was like, you know, I would really love to know what happened to to uh, to Joe Adams or Joe Bascopoulos as he's been calling himself on that ship for the Merchant Marines, um, which they changed yeah. the name um, of the ship to the darling the um they changed the name to the lady um or sorry the, the briny marlin they changed the name to the briny marlin and that's how dorothy knows that joe's still alive and she goes to uh to see him after he's disappeared and returned the money and he tells her to go off and but she waits by the docks and she keeps waiting by the docks coming back to the docks and the ending to this film is so heartwarming for a movie where I'm actually really glad that a character of this repute does get the girl in the end. Like it's the opposite of how I feel about Casablanca, where if, if Bogart and Bergman ended up together, I'd be like, Oh, this movie doesn't work, but (laughs) well it would, but in a different way. Um, and in this movie, you know, you want to see these two end up together. Um, and I think the way that, they get Grant to go to the dock and embrace her is quite, quite cute. Like, and it's, um, it's a coin flip (laughs) and it's after this dock worker has been told the story of Mr. Lucky, um, by, uh, Swede. And it, it it just, uh, by the way, Swede played by Charles Bickford, um, he was in A Star Is Born in 1954, and he's also in the movie a movie Johnny Belinda, and he was nominated a bunch for the supporting actor Oscar. He's really good in this scene too, where he's just like, no, 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 I shouldn't have to go take care of that dinghy that this other gentleman's talking about. You need to, uh, you need to take care of it. And then they flip for it. Grant goes to take care of the issue at the boat. Uh oh, Dorothy's there. They embrace. It's the end. And they, uh, they the 
the uh, Swede and the Dockman acknowledge that this is one lucky coin, <laughs> and the movie ends. And so, like, yeah. it ends on this really positive note. And my thing was is that, like, I kept picturing, like, you know, it'd be really great to tell a story about Grant on that ship, uh, where you you would kind of like you you wouldn't find out it was a movie connected to Mister Lucky until near the end of the movie, but you show Joe Bascopolis and what he's become. Uh, and how he purports himself on a war relief ship in the Merchant Marines. Like, I just, I kept having, like, a bunch of, like, what-if scenarios with this film. And it was, like, it's a f- wonderful watch. Um, and, I mean, and Lorraine Day, we were talking about her. She's wonderful in this film. She was the lead, the, the female lead in Foreign Correspondent, which we talked about on The Shanley Silhouette. She's fantastic in the movie. And there's that scene in her grandfather's house where they're talking about the difference between their classes, uh, their class statuses. And really you hear Joe tell the story of Joe Adams as Joe Piscopolis about, you know, what it is to starve and what it is to be hungry. And like, there's this interesting scene about uh, the differences between two different class structures. Like, so there's, this movie has a lot of stuff going on in it, but for a movie that nobody talks about anymore, (laughs) it's, it's it's pretty astounding, but as you said, this is a movie that is highly rated to this day. Um, I will tell you, Ryan, it, you probably know that it was adapted for radio. Um, there was a uh, Lux Radio version done by uh, with Cary Grant and Lorraine Day reprising their roles, and it was also presented as a Screen Directors Playhouse episode um, with Cary Grant reprising his role. This was in 1950. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, which I mean, I would want to look that one up. But did you know, Ryan, that there was a television series called Mr. Lucky loosely based on this film? I did hear about that. Yes. Yeah, so this started, I hear about it. I mean, I read about it. Yes. Yeah, so this the show started starred John Vivian um, at playing the uh, playing the Grant role. Um, and it, it only lasted for 34 episodes in one season. Um, and. It, Blake Edwards was the was the person uh, at the helm of the thing, but it seems like they changed a lot of stuff in order to kind of work it for television. But um, it, despite being high rated in the fifty nine sixty season, uh, Lever Brothers, who was the sponsor, canceled their sponsorship, and CBS couldn't find anybody to replace it. Um, and John Vivian said, "This is you're gonna find this funny." John Vivian believed the program was pulled in order to give up its Saturday night uh, Saturday time slot as a favor to Jack Benny to a new drama in the fall of 1960 called Checkmate, which was produced by Jack Benny's company. So I apologize if Jack Benny hurt your feelings, right? <laughs> I, I knew Jack Benny was evil. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, and actually, like now that we're since we'll do this, I will try to bring this up whenever I can. Does Jack Benny have anything to do with this discussion today? And he does because you did watch an episode of Jack Benny's show where uh, Irene Dunn plays a very important part in it. <laughs> oh, she's amazing in that show. She's so funny. I Here's the thing. Is I have a huge crush on her. I think she's so funny. She's so beautiful. Um, she's so talented. I mean... Whether it's Showboat or it's Penny Serenade, um, I will watch anything that Irene Dunn is in. She she is a 
you know, showboat and showboat is a discussion that I think we should definitely have at some point because obviously the discussions of what happens in that movie have become more prevalent. But also, it's a James Whale movie. You can't not talk about James Whale. But Irene Dunn had a a very fascinating like trajectory because like this was awful truth was only her second comedy and she ends up kind of like really cementing herself in that genre she's really good and i remember mama um you know cimarron's a good movie too but this is earlier in her career um and she 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 her you were right about her timing and it's why i was glad when you watched that jack benny episode because jack was a was his thing was timing and you can see that they're both operating on the same comedic level because of the fact that they are both in tune with how filmed comedy works and how spoken dialogue comedy works. And that's an episode that's built on its dialogue. Um, if anybody, if anything, the one person who feels like he might be out of place is Vincent Price in that episode. <laughs> he, yeah, but, I mean, he has to play the straight guy. So oh, yeah. he does. It, it works. Yeah. And, and, and it also has this... And what's interesting about that particular episode, it's one of those instances where I believe the television version surpasses the radio version because I think Irene Dunn plays into the comedy better, even in, even on television, than Claudette Colbert did in the original radio episode. So it's another testament to Irene Dunn's ability as uh, as an actress. Um, and, you know... As we've as we wrap up this segment, you know we're gonna have plenty of other chances to talk about Grant. But so Ryan, would you like? Obviously, there's a lot of classic films for Grant where you could choose to pick for somebody and say, "Here, watch this." Would you say The Awful Truth is the best entry level film for people? Uh, no, I would say Charade is um, because it's funny enough and it's goofy enough. Um, uh, I'm not disparaging charade, um, but I think charade is the easiest entry point um, for someone who's trying to get into it. I already had liked Cary Grant, so it was easy for me to fall in love with The Awful Truth. Mm-hmm. But I think The Awful Truth is the best gateway into screwball comedies. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a fair fair point. That that because like yeah with Grant I think if you're wanting to know who he is it would help to start with charade. I was gonna argue North by Northwest only because it it envelops a lot of his persona while also showing you know what he does with the Hitchcock realm too. So yeah, yeah the only were... reason I'd lean to charade is because it's a little lighter. Um, okay. You know, uh, North by Northwest is. I mean I don't know if light's the right word, but it's more suspenseful. Where um, charade is, I don't know, a little lighter. The stakes, uh, the stakes, despite being so high, feel so low. Like, like yeah, it's, it's um, and it's it, it's because you also have Audrey Hepburn um in it, and I think she helps um with the f- picture because she's amazing as well. Yeah, and it it, it helps bridge it. Um, I mean, if you're looking for, like I said, you're looking for the ultimate Cary Grant movie, then yeah, North by Northwest is the ultimate Cary Grant movie. Um, But um, yeah, I think The Awful Truth is the most accessible screwball comedy. I say that because whether it's His Girl Friday, My Man Godfrey, all these really uh, highly respected, well-revered screwball comedies, they talk so fast in them that you have to, I think, kind of be eased into the genre Mm -hmm. where... 
the awful truth doesn't have a lot of fast talking and people talking over each other. Mm. Um, and I, so, yeah, uh, um, I, I think the awful truth is the perfect um, gateway into screwball comedies. And if you like the awful truth, like I do, then you will absolutely love screwball comedies, whether it's Philadelphia story, his girl Friday, yeah. I mean, either both grant films or my man, Godfrey or, um, Bringing up baby, bringing up baby. Uh, there's a lot of them for like five or six, two or three years. It was, seems like only the best movies were screwball comedies, yeah. and but, it's and uh, it's an art form that I think to this for for this day and age, the closest that I found who is able to tap into the genre properly are the Coen Brothers. Whenever they do a comedy, because yeah. their dialogue is structured as such. The timing is structured as such. Like we reviewed um, through through the Nerdemic, we reviewed Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and you know you watch that film. It's very much a screwball comedy, and it's obviously taking inspiration from Sullivan's Travels. So it already has like a backing to go with. Them. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like you, um, yeah, the screwball comedy is definitely a. It's not the. If you get into it, you'll love it because. It's funny, but you have to – it's not um, where I think a lot of people nowadays where comedy is so gag-related. Back then, it was more of dialogue-related. Yeah. And I've always appreciated dialogue in comedies um, more so than the physical stuff. Not say – I mean some of the stuff's still funny, but um, I think that's why I like these style of movies too. You know, I, I just – I love screwball comedies. And I mean, you don't even have to go with Cary Grant, even though Cary Grant is one of the leading screwball comedy <laughs> actors. Um, but, you know, you can, if you're looking for like another Carol Lombard, like something like Nothing Sacred, which mm-hmm. is really great. Um, Nothing Sacred, 20th Century, like that's yeah. a good one too. Um, Libel Lady with uh, Gene Harlow and William Powell is very good. And Myrna Loy's in that film too. So like, Libel, actually, Libel Lady is a film that I want to cover on this show to then extend off on a discussion on William Powell and Myrna Loy because The Thin Man isn't technically a screwball comedy. However, there are screwball elements in it. I, I, I think I'd say it is. I mean, I think there's it's it's silly enough where it can be. Yeah, no, the reason I mainly say it's not like strictly one is because it's also a the first one at the very least is also a murder mystery. <laughs> like, like, a, yeah. like a very much... Like I in, in re going through that series, I was like, man, it's interesting how like they become more screwball. But the first one is attempting to be a straight up adaptation of the Thin Man, the book, so it has the caper elements and it's not afraid to get grimy. As you go along the series on it, it becomes less uh, less dirty. Um, but you're right, and then you also you also have like these. This is where a lot of directors get their punch in. I mean, obviously Frank Capra really starts getting his acclaim for It Happened One Night, which is arguably like the screwball comedy that most people go into first because it's the one that wins Best Picture, Um, which Claudette Colbert is great in that film, even though I kind of downplayed her ability to tune into comic timing on Jack's show. Well, Uh, even um, someone like Clark Gable, who's never really known as comedy, I mean, he's really great in that movie. Oh, yeah, and that's a movie that he did not want to do either. (laughs) One for best picture, best director, best 
actor, best actress, and best writing. Yeah, like it's got so it wins the big five. Like, and this is a this is a thing that doesn't get repeated um, that often. Like the first time I remember seeing um, uh, seeing the big five get taken. Like, if I'm looking into like films that I first get exposed to, is like Silence of the Lambs. Um, where it wins all of those major awards in a row, but like it happened, things that happen for like it happened one night don't happen that often. Like it, it's, it literally happened one night. Yeah, it. it <laughs> now, Ryan, you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that was my grant, or not my grant. That was my uh, Clark Gable impression. Then thank you. I'll I'll take. Uh, um, but yeah, and like, and we talked about my favorite wife a little bit. It's kind of like a. I got a follow up. We should probably do a full episode on it, but it is kind of like the follow up in terms of like getting Grant and Dunn in a room together to do comedy. And that movie is where Irene Dunn really gets to shine. Like she oh, sh- yeah. she shines an awful truth, but my favorite wife, I think she's given arguably one of her best performances. Um, I do want to end on a, on a note for, Mr. Lucky and it was, it's in regards to our Academy Award discussion which we've had multiple times but there's two moments in that movie that tell me that Grant should have been nominated for this movie um, the first scene that I would bring up is when he goes to the Greek church to have the letter read to him yeah and you see the character of Joe virtually transform. Like he doesn't make the full commitment to that transformation until the scenes with Stuart in the game um, after the casino night is wrapped up. But yeah. that the look on his face is the look of complete and utter, oh shit, I am an asshole. Like self-reflection that is uh, amazing to watch him move and work with on his face. The second scene, and it's, and it's very slight, but after... Swede has returned the money to Dorothy and basically said like, Oh, I just got this money from some guy in the park and he leaves and he is in the uh, car with Grant. Grant is blocked in such a way where his face is lit. You can see the five o'clock shadow. He's been through hell Mm -hmm. and he looks like somebody has beaten him over the head with a fucking two by four. Like, and it looks like this realm of desperation and, like, wanting to be assured, like, is everything settled now? Like, I just, the way he's interacting with the, with Swede in that scene is just absolutely wonderful. And, like, I, I, it's one of those things where I'm just like, there's no reason why Grant couldn't have been nominated for this, apart from the fact of what we've discussed, which is the politics of actors in that era. And for anybody who needs clarification on why somebody like Grant wouldn't get nominated as much as he should have, uh, Grant was independent. Um, the 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 Academy Awards was founded initially to prevent the formation of unions in Hollywood, and it ended up becoming very much a union, um, a, a union based organization. And so, if somebody like Grant is going off off on his own freelance it doesn't look good to the studios who are kind of footing the bill for this award ceremony they give in their own honor and so they would obviously probably not be considering him for a prestigious award of such it's basically you play ball or you don't which is why a lot of directors and actors we love today don't get nominated for films is because they don't play the award circuit ball which operates differently but is still burdened by the same issues um 
And, you know, like, and you, you and I've talked about Grant's only sole nominations seem like they're the weirdest ones possible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like Penny Serenade is Penny Serenade's not a bad movie. It's just that it's like, really that one. Okay. Yep. I agree. We couldn't, we couldn't do it anywhere else. Um, like no, I mean, notorious is one that, he definitely deserves some recognition for it. Uh, I mean, Notorious has maybe my favorite Cary Grant quote, which is, uh, dry your eyes, baby. It's, it doesn't look good on you. It's, it's out of character. Dry your eyes, yeah, baby. it's out of character. Um, yeah, it, and I mean, now granted, the, the nomination it did get for Claude Rains is very deserved too, but it's also, oh, yeah. like, come on, like, give Grant this. Um, well, Ryan, thank you for joining us for the second episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Do you have anything you'd like to plug before you leave? I'm sure I know what it's going to be. Uh, you can hear my thoughts on movies every week on Real Nerds Podcast. You can also find my articles on Real Nerds Podcast. If you want to know more about Cary Grant, uh, search Real Nerds Podcast and Classic Cool, where I talk about all his films. Um, yeah, that's that's where you can find me, realnerdspodcast.com, at Real Nerds on Twitter, Real Nerds Podcast on Facebook. Yep. Yep. And and uh, with his Grant article series, he goes through the films bit by bit. He you rank them, and um, you uh, you really do see the the not just the development of your fandom for him, but also how Grant progresses further. Like it's it's because like the further down the list you get to the number one slot, you start seeing like this is where Grant really shines. Um, and so like it's it's a wonderful article. I recommend you check it out. Um, as for yesterday here, Ballyhoo Review, um, we can be found um, on our social media website, which is Ballyhoo Review Pod on Instagram and Ballyhoo Review Pod on Twitter. Um, and we're going to be uh, giving you more updates on that as time goes on. Um, but until our next roundabout in the yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.